So to introduce him uh, briefly, uh, Dr. McGrath is a professor, a lecturer, a researcher, and a priest. Uh, he is the Andreas Idreos Professor of Science and Religion at the University of Oxford. He's a senior research fellow at Harris Manchester College in Oxford. He's the president of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and he's the associate priest in a group of Church of England village parishers in the Cotswolds, which is maybe the most British thing I've said today, which is really good. After initial academic work in the natural sciences, Dr. McGrath turned to the study of theology and intellectual history while occasionally becoming engaged in a broader cultural debates about the rationality and the relevance of the Christian faith. So I hope you will see tonight uh, what a huge blessing he has been for the larger church as a whole. And uh, I'm going to welcome our senior pastor, Jeff uh, Warren, to the stage. He's going to pray for us, and then Dr. McGrath will come and speak. Travis, thank you so much. And a uh, big hand to Travis Cook for helping uh, bring this night about. We're so glad that you're here tonight. And um, so many of our volunteers who are helping tonight, we're so glad. And those of you who are not uh, members of our church, we're especially glad that you're here. We'd love for you to come join us tomorrow. In fact, bring a friend, as Dr. McGrath will be sharing with us tomorrow. So I, uh, I come, many of you know, I'm from North Carolina, where I actually grew up in, I grew up in Charlotte, named after the Queen, right? And uh, in Sherwood Forest, on Finsbury Place. And we used to go to Cotswold Shopping Center. That's where we'd always go. So, uh, you know, back east, as we say, I guess. But have enjoyed getting to know our speaker tonight. What you're going to love about him, he's known, I think, uh, so much for his, his mind and a and great story. But what I have come to love about him is his heart. He loves the Lord. And he, uh, he has come here a long way to come and share with us tonight. So you have uh, done well. You're stewarding your time well to be here. So let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to speak into our hearts tonight and draw us closer to him as a result of being here. Lord, we thank you so much uh, that you have brought us here to this place tonight. And we do ask that our minds will be uh, enlightened, our hearts will be enlarged, and uh, in the end, that we will grow, that we will learn that some of us, maybe all of us, in varying degrees, will have certain barriers um, to faith broken down a bit. But most of all, our great desire is that we would be drawn closer to your great love for us that we would come to know you and trust you more and love you more and, uh, and obey you and follow you uh, to your great glory and for our good. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless our speaker, your servant tonight, and maximize our time for your purposes. In your name we pray. Amen. And now let's, let's welcome Dr. Alistair McGrath. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be here in Dallas tonight. And what I want to do in this lecture is basically open up some big questions. What, do we, what are we looking for in life? How does science fit into that? Is science enough? What about this question about meaning and value in life? The question of proof of beliefs and things like that. And these are questions which were very important for me because when I was um, growing up during the 1960s, I was a scientist, and it just seemed to me to be really obvious that there was science, and science just eroded any possibility of believing in God. And so I was a kind of quite aggressive atheist. I, I mean, I just took the view that people who believed in God were mad or bad or sad or possibly all three. 
Uh, and in fact, sometimes, you know, when I, when I read Richard Dawkins these days, I get very nostalgic because I used to be like that back in the 1960s. But then I went to Oxford, and there I discovered, first of all, thinking Christians who said, look, that is not the way things are. There's a better way of looking at things. And also began to realize that the Christian faith was able to take in the natural sciences, make sense of them, and give us some very important pointers about what is good about science and also where science really doesn't quite deliver what we might be looking for. And so in this lecture tonight, what I'm going to do is compare two very interesting thinkers. They're both Oxford thinkers, Richard Dawkins and C.S. Lewis. And what I'm going to do is use them to begin a conversation about some themes that are really relevant to faith, to science. And I want to begin to talk about um, how um, this um, will advance my presentation, <laughs> which is not doing at the moment. Uh, but I got a good shake, and look, <laughs> we have a new slide. The first, the first person we're talking about tonight is Richard Dawkins. There he is. Many of you will have read some of his books. Um, Professor of the Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University before he retired. And his books include The Selfish Gene and perhaps most importantly, The God's Delusion. And he's a very interesting writer. And I've set him against C.S. Lewis, again, another very interesting writer who went on from Oxford to become professor of medieval and Renaissance English at Cambridge University. And many of you will have read his books. I've just put two there on the screen for you, Mere Christianity and Surprised by Joy. And Lewis is someone I discovered shortly after I converted to Christianity. And what I discovered about Lewis is this. You read Lewis and say, hey, that was good. And then you read it again, and you, you, you find things you missed the previous time round. So reading Lewis really is always about being drawn deeper into a really very important resource. So what I'm going to do in this lecture is to talk about these two figures with very different life trajectories. Uh, Dawkins, an evolutionary biologist who moved from what I think is a very nominal Anglicanism to atheism, and C.S. Lewis, a uh, classicist, English literature, who moved from atheism to mere Christianity. What does he mean by mere Christianity? Well, really, it's a kind of form of Christianity that focuses on basics. It's not really a denomination. It's much more, here is what lies at the heart of the Christian faith. You find it expressed in every denomination, but basically, it's something that is beyond the denominations. What I'm going to do is talk about three areas of thought, which I think are really important in relation to thinking about science and faith, but also to thinking just about how we live our lives out as Christians. And the question I'm going to begin with is looking at this question, is faith reasonable? And the question we're really looking at here, I suppose, is this. Do you have to be able to prove something 100% without any room for doubt before you can believe it? And that's a really interesting question. And so we're going to look at this in dialogue with Dawkins and with Lewis. And Dawkins basically takes this view that you only believe what can be proved by reason or science. Whereas Lewis takes a slightly different view, saying, look, there are a lot of really important things in life, things that really matter, 
that actually lie beyond either rational or scientific proof. And so in this first part of this talk, I'm going to kick these ideas around and see where they take us, because they are actually really very interesting ideas. Let's begin with Richard Dawkins. For Richard Dawkins, faith is basically running away from evidence. Uh, in his book, A Selfish Gene, he says, faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. And at one point, he very unwisely, I think, says, faith is a kind of mental illness. But you can see what he's saying. He's saying there is fact and there is faith. And they're at opposite ends of the spectrum. Faith is about running away from engaging with reality. Now, this is Dawkins' way of looking at things. I'm going to tell you it's not right. But you do need to be aware that Dawkins' views are widely shared in modern American culture, and therefore we need to understand them, and actually I think also need to know what to say in response to them. So here's something else that Dawkins says. He says that, um, it's again from the selfish gene, faith is a state of mind that leads people to believe something, it doesn't matter what, in the total absence of supporting evidence. If there were good supporting evidence, he says, then faith would be superfluous, for the evidence would compel us to believe it anyway. And again, that's become quite influential. And I want to raise a question with you about this. It's a very important attitude, and certainly you find this attitude in the writers of a new atheism, people like Sam Harris or Daniel Dennett. And basically we could summarize it as what you see is what you get, and that reality is limited to what reason and science can prove. But I want to suggest to you, actually, Dawkins has got this wrong. I want to explain what I mean. I think once you see this, you, it, things will look very, very different. Look at this central segment of that quote. If there were good supporting evidence, then faith would be superfluous because the evidence would compel us to believe it anyway. No, that's very modern, very Enlightenment type things, characteristic of the bygone age of reason. But Dawkins fails to make a distinction. The distinction is between the total absence of supporting evidence and the absence of totally supporting evidence. And once you see that distinction, everything looks different. Look, many of you know there's this big debate going on in cosmology at the moment. Is there simply one universe or is there a kind of raft of universes which we call the multiverse? And back at Oxford and elsewhere, probably here in Dallas as well, we have very eminent scientists who say there's only one universe. And very eminent scientists say, well, there are lots of universes and they each have some evidence in their support. But the point is that the evidence isn't conclusive. It's about the absence of totally supporting evidence. And that's really important because, in effect, it means that these guys, these very eminent scientists, are saying, we believe there's a universe, we believe there's a multiverse, meaning this is what we think. We think we've got good reasons for this, but we cannot prove it's true. It's a judgment. It's an act of faith. And Dawkins is presenting science as, in effect, no ambiguity. 
one answer is right. Whereas in many scientific disciplines, you have debates based on the evidence, where the evidence can lead you in several directions, and it's not clear what the right answer is. Proof really is limited to the fields of mathematics and logic. And another point I'm going to come back to later in this talk is this. When we talk about science proving things, very often we mean something like this, that at a certain moment in time, the scientific consensus was this. But as many of you will know, the scientific consensus changes over time. And later in this lecture, I'll be talking about the whole area of cosmology. Is there a universe that's always been there or a universe that came into being? Back 100 years ago, the view was the universe was eternal. Now in science, we're talking about the universe coming into existence, and that's important for the Christian doctrine of creation, because this doctrine of creation has a new injection of vitality because of this scientific realization that a universe came into existence. So that's Richard Dawkins. Let's now look at C.S. Lewis. And many of you will know this, but Lewis was an atheist who basically reacted against God. How could there be a God when the world is such a mess? But then gradually he moved away from his atheism as he began to realize it didn't give good answers to the really significant questions he wanted to ask. And we know why he was an atheist to begin with. He talks about these in his letters. First of all, science. It was very, very obvious to Lewis that science, in effect, eroded any grounds for belief in God. And also Lewis, who fought in the First World War, felt that there could not be a God given all this suffering he saw around him. And Lewis wanted to blame God for the First World War. But of course, he began to realize there was some sort of logical problem here because if there isn't a God, then you can't blame God for the First World War. And so actually, the blame comes back to us. And Lewis found that a very difficult thought. But here's the real issue. The real issue is that Lewis began to realize that while atheism seemed to make some kind of sense to him, it didn't deliver on big issues like what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? The kind of questions that the philosopher Karl Popper calls ultimate questions because they are so important. And Lewis began to realize that things weren't that simple. There's a quote from Surprised by Joy, his autobiography, as he talks about this dilemma he found himself facing. On the one side, he writes, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real I thought grim and meaningless. And this is Lewis's reason saying there's no God. And something within him deeper saying, yes, there is and you know that godlessness doesn't deliver what you're looking for. And you can see him expressing that tension in that beautifully crafted piece of writing. And what Lewis came to see was that Christianity is what I'm going to call a big picture. 
In other words, it's a way of thinking about things, a way of looking at our world, a way of understanding our lives, which is to be evaluated by its ability to fit in what we see and what we observe. And so I put on the screen this very good quote from Lewis, which comes right at the end of a lecture he gave in Oxford in 1945. And it's a final sentence of the lecture entitled, Is Theology Poetry? And let me read it to you. It's a very powerful sentence. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Now, it's a very powerful image. It's the image of a sun. So just, just enter into the image. You're standing on a mountaintop. It's dark, and you're looking down. Everything is dark, and then the sun begins to rise. The shadows begin to dispel. The mist is burnt off. You suddenly see what is there. And the point that Lewis is making is that Christianity enables us to see this world and ourselves in a new and exciting way, which makes sense. It's like a lens bringing things into focus. And that's what brought Lewis to faith, and that is what kept Lewis in faith, this realization that Christianity makes sense of things. So I want to interact a bit with what Dawkins is saying. And I want to begin by saying I'm going to take him very seriously because I'm going to say I think he's right when he says we need to provide reasons for our beliefs. We can't just say, you know, someone told me this, so it's right. You know, why do we think this? That's a fair point. But I think Dawkins is wrong when he says we can prove everything that we believe because actually Dawkins could not prove his own atheism. That's one of the most interesting things about him, that he's haunted by this realization that the core belief which he regards being so important is something which cannot absolutely be proved. And that's a really important point. When I moved from atheism to Christianity, initially I thought I'm moving from atheism to faith. But actually, as I thought about more looking back on it, it's almost like moving from one kind of faith to another kind of faith. What do I mean? Because an atheist is someone who believes there is no God, but cannot prove that that is right. The Christian is someone who, like me, believes there is a God and finds that enormously helpful and meaningful, but knows at the end of the day, I can't prove it either. And that's because there's anything wrong with God. It's because of the limits placed upon us as human beings. I put on the screen this quote from the atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell. He says, philosophy helps us to live without certainty, yet without being paralyzed by hesitation. I said, Russell is an atheist, and yes, he is. He chose to be an atheist, but he always made it clear that there was no way he could show he was right. Epistemologically, he was agnostic. He chose, as a matter of lifestyle choice, to be an atheist. So what I'm saying to you is this is not as straightforward as Dawkins actually is making out. And I'm going to quote to you from Isaiah Berlin, a very well-known Oxford historian, who basically said, look, I've looked at everything that human beings believe, and they fall into three categories, those that can be proved by science, by empirical observation, those that can be established by logic, 
and those that can't be proved in either of these ways. And here's the point that Isaiah Berlin made. Every belief that we think is meaningful, anything about what is right, what is good, anything about the meaning of life, any political or social belief you have is in that third category. It's not something you can prove to be right. And Berlin is just saying, get used to it and don't worry about it. That's just the situation we face as human beings. We have to say, I believe this, and I think I have good reasons for believing this, but we might not be able to prove that that is true. And there is Kerry Eagleton, a well-known British uh, cultural critic, saying, we hold many beliefs that have no unimpeachably rational justification, but are nonetheless reasonable to entertain. In other words, we can prove it, but we're still able to say this matters to us and we take it very seriously. So I want to do a thought experiment with you. And we're going to take Dawkins very, very seriously. I want you to imagine that you're only going to accept ideas that can be conclusively and decisively proved to be right. And I want you to ask what sort of world that would be. What sort of things could you believe? Well, here are three. Two and two make four. Okay, there's a good reason to get up tomorrow. The whole, W-H-O-L-E, is greater than the part. And the chemical formula of water, this stuff I'm drinking, is H2O. Now, all of those are right. But I'm just going to make the point, they don't actually do very much for us. Here are some things you could not accept if Dawkins is right. Any moral, political, or religious ideas. The idea that life has a meaning, and the meaning is whatever. Any notion of what is good or bad. There is a God. There is not a God. None of those are in the realm possibility. The point I'm trying to make to you is that Dawkins is limiting us to a very small world. And it's a world that is not big enough for us to live meaningful human lives. And that's why I think Lewis is so important. He realizes that there are really big questions in life and they cannot be answered with complete proof. But nevertheless, we have good reasons for thinking that certain things are right and that they may be trusted. I'll talk more about this in the third section of the lecture. So we move on to our second topic. Does science disprove God? Now again, when I was young, I thought the answer to this was simply yes, end of discussion. And Dawkins, I think, still believes that today. He says science makes belief in God unnecessary, incredible, and in the end, scientific explanations are always going to win out. And of course, the progress of science always entails the retreat of science, and as we were seeing a moment ago, his argument is that science proves its assertions, religion just asserts them. But you can see already there are problems here. Look at the third of them. The progress of science has moved us away from the universe has always been there to the universe came into existence. That's a big change. And it's a change which, in effect, creates new possibilities for us as Christians to talk 
about our faith. I'll come back to that. Lewis is skeptical about this scientific positivism. He argues that science is provisional. It's on a journey, and it has not yet reached its end. So we can say, this is what we think now, but in 10 years' time, that might change. Secondly, the process of induction, in other words, you see certain things and you try to tease out what lies behind that, doesn't deliver the certainty that many seem to crave, including, I have to say, Richard Dawkins. And his big positive point is this. Christianity is able to provide an intellectual framework that makes sense of the scientific enterprise and the successes and also helps us grasp its limits. One of the things that Lewis would argue is this. There is this big picture of life, and science fills in part of that picture, but only part of it. There's a lot more that needs to be added, and Christianity fills that in. So if you like, we're talking about enrichment, the Christi Christian faith having some very important things to say in that bigger picture of life. There's a quote from a, a Cambridge theologian who basically is saying, look, we mustn't think of God as some kind of object in the world. God is the foundation of the whole thing. God is the canvas on which the picture is painted or the frame in which it's set. But let me, if I may, now look at this change in cosmology, which really is important. There's a writer called Arrhenius who, um, in 1906, wrote a bestseller. This was science absolutely up-to-date, the latest scientific wisdom on the biggest questions of life. And his answer to where did the universe come from was, nowhere, it's always been there. Look at this. The universe, in its essence, has always been what it is now. Matter, energy, and life have only varied as to shape and position in space. And that was the scientific consensus of 1906. It's not today. Because science has moved on. It said, no, no, we got that wrong. The universe came into existence and so, of course, there's suddenly a new space for this idea of creation. The debate is, did the universe just happen, or did someone bring it into existence? And that is a very interesting change. And, of course, many of you will know the background to this, the work of Edwin Hubble and the realization the universe was expanding, and the standard cosmological model, sometimes called the Big Bang universe, really began to explode in this remarkable way. And what was interesting is that actually atheists were hostile towards this realization that the universe came into existence. Why? Well, Fred Hoyle, a British astrophysicist, said it sounded too religious. Well, there's a food for thought. And there's Steven Weinberg writing in 1967, talking about uh, Fred Hoyle's steady-state theory, which meant the universe had always been there. The steady-state theory is philosophically the most attractive theory because it least resembles the account given in Genesis. <laughs> Again, there's a bit of an anti-religious agenda, but look at what he says next. It's a pity that the steady-state theory is contradicted by experiment. <laughs> so you see, we have moved on, and that really is a very important point. Back in Britain in 1948, we had a big debate between Bertrand Russell and Frederick Copleston on the question of God. 
And as many of you will know, this uh, created a big imp impact. And uh, Frederick Cobbleson won the debate on several points, including do we need God to be moral? But he lost it on the question, do we need God to explain the universe? Because Bertrand Russell just said, look, the universe has always been here. There's no need to explain something that's always been here. But you can't use that argument now. And indeed, 50 years later, this argument was replayed. William Lane Craig debated a, uh, Anthony Flew, who at that time was an atheist, but that didn't stay that way because Anthony Flew found he could not respond to William Lane Craig's constant challenge. You know, the universe came into being. What made it come into being? And he began to realize, Anthony Flew, that his atheism didn't really answer that question very well. But there's another point I need to make in response to Dawkins, and it's this. Dawkins says scientific explanations will always win out. And I want to say that Dawkins almost seems to be saying there's a scientific explanation, there's some kind of other explanation, and science makes other explanations irrelevant, wrong. Life's not like that. Let me tell you what I mean. What I want to invite you to think about is boiling a kettle. And there's a little visual image there to help you do that. So you're boiling a kettle, okay? And I'm going to quote here from Frank Rhodes, who is a British geologist who went on to become president of Cornell University in the 1990s. And Frank Rhodes says, look, um, one reason is there's energy conversion taking place, which raises the water to boiling point. That's a scientific explanation. But there's another explanation, and it's this. I wanted, remember he was British, I wanted to make myself a cup of tea. <laughs> now, I want you just to hold those two explanations in your mind, okay? Explanation one, energy conversion. Explanation two, cup of tea. Does explanation one invalidate explanation two? No. Does explanation two invalidate explanation one? No. Here's what's happening. There are two explanations. They fill in the big picture. They give you added depth. And that's what I'm saying this is all about. Here's Frank Rhodes himself talking about this. These are two different answers, but both are true, both are complementary, not competitive. One answer is appropriate in a particular frame of reference, the other in another frame of reference. There's a sense in which each is incomplete without the other. Yes, you can give a scientific account of the origins of the universe, and that's like energy conversion. But you can also say it is an act of creation by God, and that's a different level of explanation. And the key point I'm making is these fill in the bigger picture. They give us a richer understanding of what is going on here. And so we come to the third and final point I want to make, which in many ways is the most important. And in many ways, I've been kind of a leading up to this by the questions that I've been asking. And it's all to do with this question of meaning. What is the point of life? And science is very, very good at giving us reductionist approaches to humanity. We are just atoms and molecules. That's what science says, so that's it. Well, no scientist I know actually would say that because it's so obviously wrong. Look, um, I'm holding this bottle of water again. 
this is made of atoms and molecules. I'm made of atoms and molecules, and each of you is as well. If being made of atoms and molecules means each of us is on the same level as this, we're in real trouble. And the point I'm trying to make is it's obvious this is just not an adequate account of human nature. It's part of the picture. Sure, we are, but there's so much more that needs to be said. Or again, a very reductionist approach which you find in Richard Dawkins, where our sole purpose is to reproduce our genes. Those of you who have read Dawkins will know uh, his book, River Out of Eden, in which he talks about um, human beings simply dancing to the music of DNA. It doesn't know, it doesn't care, but it controls us. And the key point I want to emphasize here is this. Of course, we can explain aspects of human nature like that. But it's the bigger picture of who we are, why we're here, why we matter. We need a big picture which integrates all of these perspectives and goes beyond them. And that's what we find in the Christian understanding of human nature. <clears throat> so the key point I'm emphasizing is this. Science is great in my view, but it is incomplete. There is more that needs to be said. We don't just want to know how things work. We want to know what they mean. And this longing to understand who we are, this quest for meaning is integral to human nature. I've quoted here from Jeanette Winterson, a British no novelist, who um, uh, quotes, gives this quote in a book she wrote called Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. It's a great title. I wish, I, wish I'd thought something like that. <laughs> but listen to this quote. It's really good. We cannot simply eat, sleep, hunt, and reproduce. We are meaning-seeking creatures. I want to say that is right. That's what Scripture is saying. We are people who are looking for meaning because we've been made to look for it. If you like, we have a homing instinct for God who is the source and goal of this quest for meaning in life. I quote also Albert Einstein, who is very interesting here. Science can only ascertain what is, not what should be. And outside of its domain, value judgments of all kinds remain necessary. So let's look at this point. I'm going to look at a Spanish philosopher who um, makes this point very, very clearly. He is saying, as I would say, that science is really, really good, but it has a limited area of operation. We need more than science. It's not that science is wrong. It's that science is inadequate. It fills in part of this big picture, but leaves other parts empty. Here's what uh, Ortega says. Scientific truth is characterized by its precision and the certainty of its predictions. But science achieves these admirable qualities, and they are admirable, at the cost of remaining on the level of secondary concerns, leaving ultimate and decisive questions unanswered. We're given no escape from ultimate questions. What he means by that is, why are we here? Who are we? How do we lead the good life? In one way or another, they're in us. Whether we like it or not, scientific truth is exact. 
but it is incomplete. And I think it is a helpful way of thinking about this. Science is doing some great things. It's helping us understand how our universe functions. But it doesn't answer those questions that you and I probably regard as being right at the heart of our lives. How can I become a good person and live the good life? Why am I here? What am I meant to be doing? Science is very, very good at telling us how we came to be here, but doesn't tell us why we're here. That's something really important that you and I have to figure out. Now, Dawkins takes the view that you know, there's no meaning or purpose. Again, this is from his book, River Out of Eden. Many of you will know this quote. It's a quite bleak quote, but I'm going to give it to you, and then I'll reflect on it. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we'd expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, we are here in a meaningless, pointless universe. And because the universe is meaningless and pointless, we are as well. What we can do is invent meaning. That's something we're very good at doing in a post-truth situation. But Dawkins is saying there is nothing in the universe that gives us any reason to think well of ourselves, any reason to talk about value or purpose. There's nothing there. Now, that's an important point, but look at what Dawkins is saying. He's saying not, I can prove there's no purpose, but the universe we observe has the properties we'd expect. In other words, it's, he, he's reading these things back into it. Now, Lewis is very strong on this point. I want to talk about him because what he says is really quite significant, I think also quite easy to understand. And many of you will have read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And one of the children um, shows off his scientific knowledge of astronomy to Ramandu, who's an old man. And this is Eustace Scrub. And Eustace says, in our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And the old man wasn't impressed. Listen to what he said. Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of. Again, that is not what a star is, but only what it's made of. It's a reductionist approach. It's not delivering what really matters, which is value, meaning, significance, identity, all the things that really matter. Now, Lewis, like many people, is aware of the importance of stories. I've given you a quote on the screen from some anthropologists just saying, look, th that's what human beings do. We use stories to make sense of a world. We are animals who must fundamentally understand what reality is, who we are, how we ought to live, by locating ourselves in the larger narratives and meta-narratives that we hear and tell and that constitute for us what is real and significant. And Christianity tells a story, the greatest story that's ever been told. And we are part of that story. And it makes sense of who we are, this world of ours, and also gives us this framework for meaning and value. 
And Lewis, I think, is very clear on this. The Christianity is a story from which we derive doctrines. And he is very, very clear on the importance of stories. Think of Narnia. Think of the children entering into Narnia in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. They hear different stories about Narnia, and they have to decide which is the story they can trust. Is Narnia really the realm of this white witch, or is it actually the realm of Aslan, the lion who will return and make things good all over again? And the key point is that our culture offers us multiple stories. They can't all be right. And so you and I need to decide which story can we trust and then step into that story and become part of that. And Lewis is very, very good on this. Um, uh, what Lewis says, and I think it's a really interesting point for you to think about, is that each of us has our own unique individual story, which matters profoundly. And yet it is by stepping into the bigger story of the Christian faith that our own stories are given meaning and value and significance. It's not about taking away. It's about adding something else on, something of real importance. And so Lewis in many ways is saying that faith is about taking my story and allowing it to become part of a bigger story, and I help that bigger story move along. But in doing that, I discover who I am and what I'm meant to be doing. So for Lewis, that's a really important theme. So I come back to this point about science. And the point I'm saying again, I'll reiterate this, is that science is really, really good but it doesn't answer all of our questions. This is Peter Medworth, who won the Nobel Prize for Medicine some while back. In a book called The Limits of Science, he argued that science has its limits and that we need to acknowledge that there are, I quote, questions that science cannot answer and that no conceivable advance of science would empower it to answer, like the question of the meaning of life. Now, Medua was an old-fashioned rationalist. He didn't like religion. He was skeptical about faith. But he was very, very clear that science couldn't answer this question without stopping being science and becoming some kind of philosophy or religion instead. And Medua's point is that questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Are good questions. And the fact that science can't answer them does not mean these questions are unanswerable. It means we look somewhere else for those answers. So that really is why I want to focus on this whole question of meaning. The point I'm going to make is it's not an empirical question. By that I mean it's not that I, you know, I can say, oh look, I can see there are 400 people here tonight. No. You cannot read meaning off. It's about interpreting ourselves, interpreting our world. And that's why I go back to that quote from Lewis about believing in Christianity as, he believed, as the sun had risen because it lit things up and disclosed meaning and value. 
meaning is about interpreting our world. It's a judgment. It's a matter of faith. And Dawkins's judgments are just as much a matter of faith as everybody else's. When he says, I believe there is no meaning in life, that is a faith statement. And that's a really important point to make. So I'm going now to um, end with by just reflecting on where Dawkins' approach takes us. Remember, I asked you to do a mental experiment earlier in this talk. And I asked you to think about things you could believe, then things you couldn't believe, and ask you if you were satisfied with that world into which you were being invited to enter. So what we're going to do is look at Alex Rosenberg's Atheist Guide to Reality, which in many ways develops Dawkins' approach. And I'm going to highlight that there is a problem here. So this is Alex Rosenberg's book, and he asks five questions, and I put them on the screen for you, uh, along with his answers. So here we go. Question one, is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What's the purpose of the universe? There is none. What's the meaning of life? Ditto. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Now, I want you to look very closely at that last statement, which is just quoted from Rosenberg. It's what Dawkins would say as well. When I first read that response, I thought, I have misread this. What he meant to say is science is unable to disclose a moral difference between them. Then I read it again. That wasn't what he said. There is no moral difference between right and wrong, good and bad. I don't know how many of you have seen the film Schindler's List. It's a chilling film. And it's very hard to come away from that film and saying ethics is relative. There's no good, no evil. It's just whatever you want it to be. You, know, you realize there's something wrong. What Lewis says, and I think Lewis needs to be heard very, very clearly at this point, is that built into the fabric of our universe, because God's, its creator and our creator, is a moral ordering we can discern and live out in our lives. We are not inventing meaning. We are rather discovering it and responding to it. And for Lewis, remember that image of a big picture. For Lewis, the Christian big picture helped you to make sense of this world and ourselves. And the key point I want to emphasize is that if Lewis is right, the Christian big picture helps to understand who we are, why we matter, and gives us a framework to think about what we should be doing. So I'm going to bring this lecture to a close. What I've been doing really is just opening up some massive questions and I fail to do justice to those questions. I want to make that very, very clear. But I've used Dawkins and Lewis to open these questions up. And I'm trying to make the point, actually, the human situation, the reality of who we are, is such that we have to learn to live with not being able to prove the core beliefs that underlie our lives. But that's not a problem. It's just the way things are. Christians of faith, atheists of faith, and Christians think they can justify their beliefs, and that's good. But it doesn't mean that we are wrong 
because we cannot prove we believe. Dawkins challenged us rightly, say, tell us why you think you're right, and that's good. And part of the challenge facing Christian apologetics is for each of us to be able, in the words of 1 Peter chapter 3, to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And that's a real challenge. But in the end, Lewis is making a point that is never going to go away. The Old Testament says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Lewis takes that and just, just develops it very slightly. In effect, we need meaning. That seems to be part of what we are as human beings, the way we were made by God. Science can't deliver that meaning, but for Lewis, Christianity can. And so for me, the challenge to each of us is to discover that meaning and to make sure we live that life out. Because for Lewis, that was one of the reasons why he became a Christian and stayed one. There's much more I could say, but I'm going to end with that quote from C.S. Lewis I gave you right at the beginning. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. We need to see everything else in the light of the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Hey, thank you again, uh, Dr. McGrath, so much uh, for, for your words. Uh, we wanted to open up a, a time of, of questions and answers. Uh, so if you have a question uh, related to some of what was discussed here tonight, uh, would, uh, we've got some people that I think are ready to field those questions. I've got some mics back here. Uh, and so you just pop your hand up, and Brandon or Corey will come your way. Got one right here, I think, coming out front. And then there's one over here. Actually, there's one. Yeah, let's start there. Doctor, thanks for coming tonight. Uh, is there anything in the theory of multiverse that is contradicted by or would not be allowed by a Christian faith as derived from the Bible? I think that um, the Bible is saying that everything is made by God. And we, we tend to use that word universe in two senses. One is to mean just our local area, but then there's this bigger sense, everything that's made. And so for me, th there wouldn't really be a problem with this. But let me emphasize two things I think are really important. One is that um, if the multiverse hypothesis is right, it means that we know nothing about those other universes because we cannot assume they bear any relationship to ours. So we can't extrapolate to them from what we know. But secondly, I I'm going to bring Richard Dawkins back into the conversation here. Dawkins... Um, likes the multiverse hypothesis because he thinks it's anti-theistic. It's not actually, but, but that, that's what he thinks. And do you remember that quote I gave you earlier? Um, uh, you know, Steve Weinberg's quote, you know, I choose this theory because it's least like the book of Genesis. There's a certain sense in which Dawkins is going for the multiverse because he thinks it's, it actually is bad news for God, but it's not really. Thank you. Yes, I'd like to <coughs> ask about Stephen Hawking. Mm. 
he is an exceptionally brilliant man, but I get the impression from reading his books he's not exactly a born-again Christian either. Uh, <laughs> what is your viewpoint about his viewpoint? He also, by the way, believes in this multiverse from what I've read. Thank you. Yes, you're right. I mean, I mean uh, some of you may have, have, have seen the film um, about him, which is actually quite a good film. Um, but you're quite right. I mean, that, that is his position. He, he did not himself think that the universe disclosed a god or a multiverse. But at other points, it's very clear he can understand why other people think there is one, including, of course, his, his wife, who took a very strong view on this. I think what I'd want to say is actually, uh, do you remember I tried to say that the, there's, um, in effect, there's science and then there's something else you put in the big picture? I mean, the question that really is being debated here is not so much scientific theory, but the interpretation of science. And what Hawking is doing is offering us an interpretation. He's saying, I don't think this is really leading us towards God. And, and that's his viewpoint, and we respect that. But actually, there are other people taking very different viewpoints. For example, uh, the Oxford mathematician John Lennox takes a, a very different view on this. So what I would say is that um, uh, Hawking does say that, but it's not an evidence conclusion. It's his judgment on this. And actually, there are other passages in his writings which do point in different directions. And that's why it's interesting to note that Hawking actually is buried in Westminster Abbey. I mean, maybe, maybe there's just some intuition there which actually may, may be relevant to our discussion. Thank you. Dr. McGrath, thank you for being here. Uh, my question is in the field of evolutionary biology, if you would. Um, Something that's always bothered me as a Christian is like the evidence possibly from like ape to man and like the uh, different transitory possible man-like species that are in between. I wonder if you can shed some light on, on that, please. Well, I think this is a very good question and um, it does require quite a long answer, which I haven't got time to give. But let me try and tease out a few things that are quite important. One of them is a point that's made by Richard Dawkins uh, in his book, uh, Devil's Chaplain. He, 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 he makes the point that all scientific theories are provisional. In other words, you know, this is where we see it now, but we might not see it like this in 100 years' time. And interestingly, he chooses as an example to illustrate this Darwinism. He says in 100 years' time, um, Darwinism may have been so radically changed we may not recognize it or may have been abandoned altogether. So we, we, Dawkins is very clear there. We have to be careful about this. And, and that, that's, a, that's how, what I begin with, by saying we've, we've, you know, we, we, this is not something that we need to see as absolutely factual. There's a theory that is undergoing change. But nevertheless, within that, within that context, um, there are, I think, questions that, that would be very, very pertinent to discuss in more depth. For example, um, what are the links between us and uh, other parts of the living world. And I think it's fair to say that, that Darwinism, if it is right, does raise some questions about this. It also, I think, um, raises questions about um, our status. Um, certainly the idea, the idea we find in the book of Genesis about uh, us bearing the image of God remains enormously important. But actually, it, it, it emphasizes that maybe our bearing the image of God is not simply about 
having any authority of creation, but actually almost having some responsibilities towards creation for ensuring that it is well looked after. So I think my, my feeling is that, that there are a lot, of, a lot of questions relating to theory of evolution which um, do, are raised by the kind of issues that Dawkins wants to talk about, but I, I just couldn't cover them properly in the space available other than to say they do need to be looked at and um, given due attention. Some of them, I think, um, you know, rest upon the current state of um, biological theorizing, which is going to change. Other of them may, may require more detailed theological reflection. But thanks for asking a very good question. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, your question's about the meaning of life. Christianity is not the only religion that attempts to answer these questions. There are lots of religions around the world who talk about how the universe came to be and why we're here. Um, can you just speak to why you think Christianity is it? Uh, a very good question. So um, you're quite right. I mean, I mean uh, a lot of um, academics are now using the world, the word worldview. And uh, what they mean by that is a big picture of reality, which might be religious or might be non-religious. For example, uh, the British philosopher Mary Midgley says that Marxism is a very good example of a non-religious worldview, which actually does um, generate meaning um, without actually having any, any religious um, beliefs at all. So I think what I want to say to you is this. You are right functionally in that worldviews generate meaning. That, that's what they do. But those worldviews are based on something. And so it is right to ask, what are they based upon? Uh, for example, if, if you take Marxism, it's based on a very vulnerable understanding of the relationship between um, social situation and truth. If you look at other religions, for example, Islam or, or Buddhism, you know, they, they, they have clearly got some kind of foundations, but nevertheless, the question as to what is the evidential warrant for their beliefs remains a very, very difficult one. So what I'm trying to say in a sort of roundabout way is that, yes, you're right, that there are multiple sources of meaning. You're absolutely right. And I'm emphasizing how important meaning is. But in many ways, the point I'm trying to make is that Christianity naturally generates these systems of meaning. I, mean, I believe in Christianity for several reasons. One is because I believe it's historically very well warranted, but also because it gives you this, this way of looking at the world, which seems to me to make empirical sense and also to deliver these judgments about meaning and value. So what I'm saying is that the question of what a worldview does in terms of generating meaning is not for me an indication of its truth, it's simply an indication of its character as a worldview, because that's what worldviews do. To judge worldviews, it is best to kind of way go back to what it is that actually gave rise to them in the first place. But I think we could say there is a case to be made for saying that what a worldview says about certain things might be part of the case for evaluating its truthfulness. And that's if we take Richard Dawkins' view, I mean, for example, his argument that there is no meaning, no evil, no good, no nothing. There's only blind pitiless indifference there. I mean, Dawkins would say that that's very bleak, but it's true. We have to get used to it. My response is it's his way of reading things. 
It's a judgment. It's not a fact. And therefore, actually, it might be that the bleakness of this viewpoint is actually a reason for asking, well, are there other answers that might be given which might seem to make a lot more sense than that? So in response to your question, yes, other religions do generate uh, meaning and value, but I'm not saying we judge them by their capacity to do that. It's much more I want to go and ask what underlies them and what might we explore in discussing with them the relative claims of Christianity in relation to that. Thank you. Hello, um, thank you for your talk. So many of us in, our, in this room, including myself, are scientists by training, and we are so obsessed in terms of finding out how this matter works or the underlying mechanism. And so it's so often that it blinds us to ask us what, what's the meaning behind it as well. Uh, and uh, for example, you mentioned about the boiling water. As a scientist, we talk about this thermodynamic dynamic laws and all that, but we, don't, we have no idea why you want to boil. Uh, maybe a cup of coffee or tea uh, and that. And that's the where the, in my opinion, uh, boundary or the threshold that is applied to a scientist, uh, not as a human being as well, also the cultural uh, perspective in this case. So in this, in this world, uh, how this uh, segre uh, segregation happens between the science and religion, I was wondering if there are any um, ways to encourage it, encourage this union between these two, which seems to be opposite, but not yet uh, completely opposite perspective. Well, thank you. Uh, that's a, a very thoughtful question. Uh, and, and, and let me talk about this, because um, what I think we're looking at is a question which is fundamentally, how do we hold together thoughts about different aspects of our world? And I'm going to give you an example, which I think illustrates the point you made very, very clearly. I'm going to give the example of Albert Einstein, who, in my view, is a very respectable scientist. Uh, very, very strong sense of the empirical method. We think of his very famous articles of 1905, you know, and the, the way in which they transformed the physics of his day. So we have a scientist who is absolutely clear on the importance of scientific criteriology, but we also have somebody who was Jewish and actually took his Jewish faith very seriously indeed. Uh, he gave a remarkable lecture on science and religion at Princeton in 1939, in which he said, look, science helps us to understand how this world functions, and it doesn't motivate us to make it to be a better place. We have to have something beyond science to be able to speak to us. And talks about religion as empowering us to want to make this world a better place. And then alongside that, we have Einstein as a politician. And you may not know this because he didn't talk about this very much, but there are several articles where Einstein advocates socialism. Now, what I want to say to you is, think about this. Socialism, uh, an act of Judaism, science. Einstein is holding all of these together. And your question is very, very good. And what, how does he draw boundaries between them? Well, the answer is he, he, he sort of way does, and yet uh, he doesn't give precise diagrams about how he can do this. I sometimes think the question here might be psychological. In other words, how is it that we're able to hold together 
different ideas which come from different places but which we think are right and we think they matter. And so we try to personally integrate these. And there's a very interesting article on the psychology of interdisciplinarity, which in effect says we've got to learn to, to realize that people are very often able to hold things together in their heads without actually having a well-defined theoretical framework for doing this. You find the same thing with Isaac Newton, who, as you know, is a scientist and a, a religious thinker at the same time. And in his writings, I think we find virtually nothing that helps us see how he held them together, but hold them together he did. So uh, it's a very good question. I, I'm not sure what the answer is. What I think it is fair to say is this, that in, in recent um, work in um, comparative epistemology, there's been a lot of realization that different academic disciplines, different aspects of science use different methodologies and different forms of rational assessment in developing their own distinct tasks. And these are correlated with their own distinct research programs. And maybe it's just a realization that actually we develop different cognitive skills for different aspects of our lives. And if that's right, then the challenge is holding these things together. And I disagree with Edward Wilson on quite a lot of things, but I don't know if you've read his book, Consilience, Consilience, which came out, I think, in 1999, in which he said that really the future belongs to people who are able to hold these things together, which otherwise are just going to drift apart. And I, I like what he's saying, but he doesn't give me an intellectual framework for doing it. Thank you. Um, my question has to do with um, why people of faith uh, seem to generate such hatred, vilification, laughter from people who are supposedly well-educated, mostly the younger crowd. As you watch television late at night, and you, you know, if you admit that you believe in God, you're just about routed off the, off the stage. What causes this particular hatred against people of faith? It's a very good question, and um, I suspect it's a complicated answer, but there's no doubt that um, even in a, a liberal society, supposedly, um, there are ways of identifying people who are out. And what I think is we're seeing this cultural pressure. Actually, people are very often rejecting Christianity, not because they've thought it through and think it's wrong, but because it is the mood of the moment to do so. And I think that there may be political reasons, there may be cultural reasons, all sorts of reasons which are coming together like this. And it is not a particularly comfortable moment to be a person of faith um, here in America. I want to make that absolutely clear. But I, I remain completely unconvinced that the reasons for this surge of negativity are valid in any way. I think that very often what you, what you find is people... Um, Richard Dawkins makes this point, and actually it's a good point, uh, although he takes it in a bad way. I mean, he says that there's something natural about human beings that makes us develop in-groups and out-groups. And we say the out-groups are consigned to outer darkness, so to speak. And Dawkins' argument is, is that what religion does? I don't think he's right. He doesn't make that case at all well. But nevertheless, what's what's going on here? That in effect we have cultural groups trying to disenfranchise other cultural groups. And if you haven't got good arguments, the only weapon at your disposal is ridicule and vilification. 
And that's uh, what I think we're up against at the moment. One of my favorite poets is, is Goethe. Uh, I'll give you what he says in German and I'll translate it. One of his books, Goethe says, We're sind gewohnt, dass die Menschen verhören, was sie nicht verstehen. We're used to the fact that people make fun of things they don't understand. I think that that's what we're seeing here. People are ridiculing something they don't understand because they, they want to, in effect, neutralize a whole people group intellectually, politically, and morally. And so all I can say to you is hang in there. <laughs> you know, the, uh, please. <laughs> uh, Professor McGrath, um, I was hoping that you could elaborate a little bit more on variations of attempts for uh, humanism to explain morality. Uh, in friends or coworkers I interact with, they think that they can ground it kind of the Sam Harris view that's like uh, human flourishing is kind of the aim or it's an evolutionary development. Uh, so if you could just elaborate, I think, at least in my opinion, Christianity has a better foundation to explain morality. Um, but they don't tend to be these kind of strict rationalists, kind of like Rosenberg and Dawkins. They kind of, they've bought into that they have a worldview that can explain it objectively and not necessarily uh, non-objectively. Thank you. Well, let's look at uh, Sam Harris's book, The uh, Moral Landscape, which I think is probably the one you, you're uh, hinting at here. I mean, certainly humanism, by which I mean secular humanism, okay? Humanism is about uh, a worldview of human flourishing. You can talk about Christian humanism quite easily, but really you're talking about secular humanism. In, in um, the moral landscape, Sam Harris argues uh, along the lines you've suggested in that, that well-being is a definable empirical uh, category which can, in effect, be equated directly with morality. And it, it's very tempting but I have to say to you that, that intellectually, what Sam Harris is doing simply is importing his morality into his science without actually being explicit about what he's doing. In other words, you know, he is not generating morality from his worldview. He's in effect um, grafting an existing morality onto that worldview. And his overall line of argument seems to me to boil down to a kind of utilitarianism which is not able to make the kind of judgments that we need at the moment. I mean, is well-being about individuals or societies? And if it's about individuals, are some people of more importance in relation to well-being than others? There are a whole range of issues there which he doesn't really address. And interestingly, for my money, the, the most powerful criticism of Sam Harris don't come from religious writers, but from other humanist writers who are in effect saying, if we go down this way, we are heading straight down a one-way street that's going nowhere. You know, they, they are very, very concerned that is an inadequate approach, and they are deeply angry with Sam Harris for having written off moral philosophy, you know, and replacing it with a kind of very, very lightweight science, whereas moral philosophy actually, although I would say it needs to engage with Christianity a lot more, has got a much more robust sense of what the issues are than Sam Harris does. So I, 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 think, that, um, I think that the criticisms I've seen made of Sam Harris by his own fellow atheists are ones he needs to take to heart. So I, I would say that this is not really a, a profitable line of inquiry that's been opened up at all, but one which actually simply reasserts the importance of having some kind of meta-ethics, that is to say, some kind of 
grounding of an understanding of right and wrong, which is not based simply in human practice, but actually is based in something. And the philosopher I quote here is the atheist, Iris Murdoch, simply makes the point that unless there is some transcendent notion of good, which of course we have in, in the idea of God, unless there is a transcendent notion of good, then our notions of good are simply the products of prejudice, power groups, and tradition. And that doesn't really work. So Harris is empirically equating something measurable with a moral quality. But actually, it's, it's not really all that empirical in the first place. And David Hume opened up this massive question back in the 18th century. You cannot move straightforwardly intellectually between what is and what ought to be. And Sam Harris seems to me to bypass that question altogether. But those are just some brief thoughts in response to a very good question. A big round of applause for Dr. McGrath. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you sir, so much. So we're, uh, we're going to conclude our time here. Um, and he's going to skip out and head to the, the book uh, signing table. The, he's going to be out there. So if you have any other questions, uh, you're welcome to ask him there uh, as well. Uh, also, if you have more questions than you maybe uh, had when you walked in, that's a sign of a good time. And uh, so it's worked. Uh, so ultimately what we want to do here, and we're a church, right? This is, this is a, a Baptist church, and uh, we're about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want Christ proclaimed. And so if you have questions about, okay, so maybe there is a God, I don't know, maybe on the fence, what does Christianity look like? What is that worldview like? What would it mean to be a follower of Christ? If you see somebody in the blue Park City shirt that's kind of kind of pixelated or mosaic, I think is the correct term, uh, we would love to talk with you about that. So just seek one of us out. Uh, look for me. I've got a name tag on. You can say hi to me, and we'll, we'd love to talk to you uh, about those things. Otherwise, uh, we've got a couple of books out for Dr. McGrath to, to, for you to purchase. Uh, they are C.S. Lewis, A Life. And the Dawkins delusion, which is his response to Dawkins' God delusion uh, as well. If you have children uh, that are here over in third floor plights, uh, pick them up and then bring... <laughs> yeah, I don't want to stay here all night. Uh, definitely pick them up and uh, bring them down to the commons uh, area, which is the, the next floor down, kind of the atrium area. We've got cookies and, and water and tea there for you guys to enjoy and, and maybe talk about what it is that you've learned and maybe talk about some of the critters uh, that maybe your kids have seen. And then uh, lastly, tomorrow morning uh, uh, throughout our campus, Dr. McGrath will be speaking again uh, during our worship services, and we would love for you to be a part of that as well. So I'm going to pray, and then you all are dismissed. Father God, uh, we give you thanks for today and the grace that you've given us uh, again in just uh, giving us brilliant minds uh, to share with us what it is uh, that we believe and to firm up uh, our faith. And so, God, I thank you, uh, one, for the challenges uh, that come uh, through uh, those who ask questions, whether they're believers or not, Lord God, you've put it in their hearts to ask questions and to challenge uh, that which they cannot see. And those are good things. It, it helps us. And so, God, I pray that you would give uh, everyone who works on those questions uh, grace and, and engagement with those who are maybe on the other side of the aisle when it comes to belief, whether uh, that person is somebody that just checks into a job every day and has a coworker who's not a person of belief, or all the way up to uh, the halls of academia where those questions are be de being debated and discussed 
on a massive scale, Lord, we give you praise and honor because you have put each of us where we are so that we might offer, uh, as Dr. McGrath said, a reasonable defense for what we believe. And so I pray you would give us uh, faith in those situations and the words that we need. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you so much.